The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Your nature. You would show us more of what you have done and that you would somehow, Lord, lift up Christ to be more central to our thinking and more central to our loving. Lord, I don't think, as I, as I look at, Lord, as I think about what I have prepared here to say, I don't think there's much in it. I'm aware of my weaknesses. But I ask you that you would do the remarkable and that you would show up by your spirit and in power build your church. We'll see something of your delivering power today, Lord, where you make something come of nothing, where you do the impossible. And would you do the impossible here now even this morning? Would you build your church through the words of feeble people like me, through the distracted thoughts of people like us, through the partial understanding and partial obedience and partial sanctification of people like us, would you build your church, Lord? Give life to your word, I pray. Honor the Son. Make him more honored here in this valley and across the, the globe because of what you do in our hearts today. Father, commission the Spirit Send him to come and work in us to lift up the name of Jesus. That's my prayer. Would you do that, please? To his glory and our good. Amen. Last week, in, in the last half of chapter 11, we saw the gospel take root in and then explode in the city of Antioch, a huge, diverse city hundreds of miles to the north of Jerusalem, everything that Jerusalem is not. This is a cosmopolitan place, Gentile place, and the church came there, was planted there, and exploded. Even in a city like Antioch. That's what we saw last week. God, through the gospel, bore great fruit there in that city. It's a city just like the world, a city that influences the whole of the world. Places like that are, were, and still are critical for the church to reach with the gospel. To take the gospel to, to spend ourselves in the winning of places like that, we must be about that, as we saw last week. But as we do that, as we go out and make the issue of Jesus Known, make Jesus an issue everywhere. What's going to happen is that we are going to come into conflict. Church and the gospel are going to come into conflict with the kingdoms of the world. That will happen. Satan is real. And Satan is the temporary prince of this realm and no prince likes having his stuff stolen. Likes having his palace plundered. And that's what we're about. That's what Christ is about as he expands his kingdom. He's about plundering this strong man's house, taking his stuff. He doesn't like that. He's going to rise up against us. And so that's going to raise the question for us. When we come into conflict against this powerful Satan, against this evil one, is there a deliverer or not? Is there someone to stand by our side and bring us through? 
It's the question that's going to be raised by today's text. Is there or is there not a deliverer? We're in Acts chapter 12 this morning. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And what we're going to see is that, yes, in fact, when we come into conflict, when the gospel comes into conflict with the powers that be, there is a deliverer. Let me read Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So... Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel or something. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The text begins about that time with a very vague time description because it's not real clear when this is happening. It's kind of overlaid with some of the events of chapter 11. We know that because the last verse of chapter 12 was the conclusion of the event described at the last verse of chapter 11, the journey down to Jerusalem with the money. So this is happening right about at the same time, these events in, in Jerusalem. Herod that we read about here is a descendant of the various Herods that you can read about in the Gospels, the ones who were kings, the one who, who built the temple, the one who persecuted Jesus. The Herods, are, they're all a long line of kings, and this one is a very powerful king. He rules a large area, of, including Judea. And while he has a little bit of Jewish blood in him, essentially he represents Rome. He holds his title and his power by the authority of Rome. He is Caesar's representative. He is the Roman government. And now in an attempt to curry favor with the Jewish population, he decides that he's going to persecute this church. And he kills James, the first apostle to be martyred. Seeing that they like this, he arrests Peter then to do the same thing to him, obviously. But it's right about at the time of the Passover, and he can't offend the Jews by killing someone, by trying and killing someone on the Passover, so he has to wait. And he puts him in prison, and probably knowing that Peter and company had earlier escaped from prison... We read about this back in chapter 5, and that there were many Jewish Christian sympathizers in the city. He makes sure, he uses all the power at his disposal to make sure that Peter is locked up. He puts him in the fortress prison in town, puts several squads of soldiers around him. He's using all of his authority, all of his power to confine Peter and hold him. This is Rome. On the one hand, Peter is kept in prison, verse 5. And on the other hand, the church cries out in prayer to God. That's the struggle set up in this passage here. Rome, this is not just the Jewish authorities, this is the official government of Rome doing all that it can to hold this man and kill him. And on the other hand, the church prays. How's that going to work out? Verse 6 and following. They begin to pray, and just on the night before Peter is to be brought out, notice again the perfect divine timing here, just at the right time, God acts. And here we have all the details about what happened. Clearly miraculous. An angel appears in the cell and a light shines. Evidence of divine interaction, not to mention useful at night in a dungeon prison cell. God sends a light and he strikes Peter. This angel strikes Peter. The same word used later in verse 23 where another angel strikes Herod. There's a contrast being set up here. God acts, sends two angels to do two strikings of two different people towards two different ends, both of them delivering the church. He strikes Peter, wakes him up. The chains, miraculously, these are manacles locked around his wrist, two of them, they fall off, unlocked, get up, get dressed. Peter doesn't really know what's going on. He thinks this is a dream and a vision. So he's kind of groggy and he, he obeys the orders, get up, get dressed. He puts on his cloak. He thinks he's seeing a vision, which would have been further accentuated by the fact that as he walks out, he walks right by these guards. 
Now, the two guards that were chained to him, they may have been allowed to sleep. They're locked inside of a cell, chained to a prisoner. They might have been allowed to sleep, but no soldier's allowed to sleep on guard duty. The guys standing at the doors, they're awake. They're wide awake. They would have rotated every three hours. This is their job, and you can't fall asleep. Especially knowing that if, if you lose a prisoner under Roman law, if you lose a prisoner, all of the guards have to undergo the same punishment that the prisoner was going to undergo. And everybody knows it's going to happen to Peter. So they would have been paying attention. They're standing at these successive doors, the first guard and then the second guard. And the angel leads Peter out, seems to imply that they actually grab the door and pull it open. And as they walk by, it says Peter thinks he's in a dream because he's standing there. Can you imagine looking at the guard, eyes open, just kind of staring right through you? Mind, you know, it's 3 a.m. in the morning, just minding his own business, kind of picks his nose a little bit, fiddles with his hair while you're standing right in front of him. He doesn't see you. Peter thinks, this has got to be a vision. Passes the first door, passes the second guard, and then they come to the main gate. Now, a main gate of a prison fortress is not unattended. There are other guards there too, and they're not asleep either. And the gate, this would have been a large gate that probably would have had some sort of a mechanism that opened it, so a human being wouldn't just grab the doorknob and open it. But this gate opens of its own accord, Nobody says anything. No guards raise any alarm. Peter, I'm still, I'm still, just this is a dream. And he walks out, and they come down the first street, and then the angel's gone, he comes too. I'm in the city. I've been freed. Whoa. You read this, it's not surprising to you. Can you imagine that? You go to sleep locked up in the prison, and you come to, and you're standing in the city. And when you're studying your Bible, you look for emphases by looking for stilted phrases, and verse 11 is that sort of a stilted phrase. If we were watching a play or a movie, the actor playing Peter would now at this point turn to the audience and say, and now I am sure that God has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And then he would step back into the play. You wouldn't say it, you wouldn't speak to yourself this woodenly if that was you. This is the point, verse 11, delivered to us. Now I am sure that God has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Well, he now is aware that I'm, I'm free in the city, and so what does he do? He wants to tell the church he goes to Mary's house. Now, from how this place is described with an outer courtyard and a servant girl, this is likely a very large home that the church has gathered in to pray. They're praying for Peter. They're praying all night before his death, they think, asking God to intervene. They're there praying. Peter goes and knocks. The servant girl, we, we read about this. It's kind of humorous. Eventually, it gets sorted out, and they come out, and, they realize, and they're amazed. They're amazed he's been liberated, and he tells them how he was set free and says, tell the church. Tell this to the church. I want the church to know how God has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting of him. And then he goes into hiding. And meanwhile, back at the prison, things didn't go well when they realized that Peter had escaped and they make a search for him and the guards are executed. And surely this has not pacified Herod 
it's surely inflamed him because now he has additional reason to persecute the church, not just to appease the Jewish people, but because he's been embarrassed and the authority of Rome has been brought into question. Some sort of a plot must have liberated him. He's going to have to hunt this down, but coincidentally, he has this other thing he has to attend to first up north in Caesarea. So he kind of has to put this on hold a little bit while he runs off to the north and settles this political dispute with these two cities, Tyre and Sidon. Now, all the details of how what is going on there, not important for us this morning. It is important to note that this is affirmed in secular history. The same thing is described in non-Christian secular history. How Herod died, what he was doing in Caesarea, the cities that were coming to interact with him. He put on his royal robes and sat upon a throne one day, and the secular history describes that they were robes made of pure silver so that when the sun hit them, they, they shone. So he's shining and he's speaking, and the people probably trying to appease him call him a god. And instead of saying, no, 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 he says, hmm, well, I kind of like that. God strikes him. An angel of the Lord comes and now strikes Herod. The secular history says about five days later, after five days of agonizing intestinal pain, he died. Either eaten by worms literally, intestinal worms, or there's some evidence that that might have been a euphemism for died, like bit the dust. Something that we use, it doesn't necessarily mean he fell into the dirt, but either way, either he literally was eaten by worms on the inside or he just died. The story begins with Herod riding high, killing James, persecuting the church. And the story ends with Herod dead and the word of God thriving, advancing, not just by addition, but multiplying, it says. How did the power struggle work out? The power of Rome locking up Peter, the church crying out to God. How did it end up? God delivered. God delivered Peter. God delivered the whole church from Herod. That's the passage for today. What do we have to learn from that? Well, I think, i put it in a sentence here. The main point, two halves to this, main point, God is the strong deliverer of his people. God is the strong deliverer of his people. So we should go to him praying for deliverance. Two halves there, half about God, half about what we're supposed to do. God, he's the deliverer. He's strong. He's powerful. He's capable. He's able. He delivers. He brings his people through. So what should we do? We should pray, pray, pray to him for that deliverance. That's what the church is doing here. They're praying to him. They're asking God, come and act and deliver. And he's capable of doing it, and he does. Two halves of that statement. Those are the two points that we're going to look at now. The first one's much longer than the second one. The first one's about God. So the first half there, God is a strong deliverer of his people. He's the rescuer, the savior. It's what he's like. It's what he is. It's his nature. He is the deliverer of his people. From trial, from tribulation, from pressure, from hardship. 
Peter's summary statement in verse 11 is the point. I am now sure, he says. Tell it to the church. I am now sure. We must be sure that he delivers from Herod and from the Herods. Delivers his people. Brings them out. He acts to rescue. Who will triumph? Evil Herod of the church. Pray, and it's resolved clearly, decisively. We get all the, uh, the account. It's a miraculous. It's the first account of the delivering of Peter. Clearly a miracle. Chains fall off. Guards blinded. Doors opened. Light shining. It's clear miracle. The power of God. And the other one, if you looked at it, you might just think, and if you're a doctor, perhaps you're even running through your mind, what might Herod have had? Because people have asked that question since, since this happened. What kind of disease did Herod have? Because if you look at it from the outside, it's much less clearly miraculous. He could have had a normal disease. He might have had intestinal worms, as many people in that time did. Or any number of other bowel obstructions, anything like that. That kind of stuff happens. Less clearly miraculous. You've got clear miraculous, less clearly miraculous, both of them from the hand of God, an angel striking. God acting to deliver. To deliver an individual out of his difficulty and to deliver a whole people by striking down an individual troublemaker. There's two different types of deliverances. Liberating and afflicting, both by the hand of God. This is miracle upon miracle. And, and the details about what kinds of things are facing the church, the details are all irrelevant. Would it really have mattered if Peter had been also chained at his ankles? Or if there had been 20 guards or 100 guards? Or if this had been in Rome rather than in Jerusalem? Would it have mattered if Herod was king over a larger area or if Herod was actually the Caesar? No, you read this and you realize it's irrelevant, all the details. God does not care how many guards there are, how many doors there are, how many chains there are. He just decides, I will deliver, and he delivers. The individual out of the trouble or the whole group by afflicting another individual. We must see this, and we, the reason he wants to tell the church is so that we will know this, because as we step out and make Jesus an issue in the face of Rome, in the face of governments, in the face of secular society that doesn't like this message, there will be conflict. Not primarily with people, but with the one who stands behind them, the evil one. Our conflict is not with flesh and blood. Our conflict is with the one who is using the flesh and blood to carry out his means. We will come into conflict with him, and he is strong. Is there a deliverer? Chapter 12 tells us, yes. Know it. Believe it. Trust it. He will, he can deliver from the evil one. We have to know that. We have to see him in this story as a strong and mighty defender who overcomes all obstacles to bring his people through. 
Right? To see that. Hope in it and trust in it. But there's one other thing that we have to observe. That I think, as, as, I, as I look at my own life, there's one other thing we have to observe that I think makes this land a little more in my life. I think this will help us apply this. James was killed. That's where the story starts. God is the strong deliverer of his people. James was killed. So was Stephen. So eventually is Peter and Paul and all the apostles except John and loads of Christians since then. And as we look at our own lives, maybe not just killed, but persecuted in some way. God is the strong deliverer of his people, but they're not delivered. What's the deal? There's a disconnect, I think, in my own life as I think about this. How do I put these things together? Because it is clear, it is sure that the the thrust, the main thrust of this chapter is about God rescuing Peter. But it begins with him not rescuing James. James is killed. And I think, as as I think about myself, I think that's my fear, actually. My fear is that I, I have to affirm it, and who among us here, Christians among us here, who's going to actually deny that God is a deliverer of his people, God is a savior, God is a rescuer? A number of us are probably thinking, sure, yeah, of course, I know that. I mean, I'm not going to deny that and say, no, God is not a deliverer. No, God is not able. No, God is not strong. Nobody's going to deny that. We all affirm that. But we actually kind of fear that the reality is that the world is more James-ish than we would like. And we fear that God can deliver Peter, but I'm James. He's not going to deliver me or my family. Yeah, God is going to strike down this danger, Herod, but mine thrives. Mine advances from strength to strength to strength, and we suffer more and more and more. Sure, he can. Of course he does. I see it. I read it. But I don't see it. Where is it? Do you experience that? Do you, do you think like that? I do. I do. What are we supposed to do about that? Well, not deny either one of these, because they're both true. They're both in this passage. We've got to figure out a way to put them together, to join them together so that we can find the, the hope and the encouragement that we're supposed to find from this chapter. Peter wants everybody to know. Peter's well aware that James was killed, that Stephen was killed, but he wants everybody to know that I've been delivered. We're supposed to find something here. Here's how my thinking goes. The path that I'm walking down as I'm trying to work this through for myself. He can deliver, but all these people end up not delivered. So they end up not delivered, not from lack of ability. He doesn't care about the details. It could be four chains. It could be a hundred guards. I really can't read this story and think that there would be a level at which God says, that's too tough. It's not from lack of ability. And it's not from lack of information. He knows exactly which cell Peter is in. And exactly the day that Peter is going to be executed. Surely he knew the same for James. 
Surely he saw James arrested, saw where James was being held, knew the day that James was going to be beheaded. So it's not from lack of ability. There must be something else going on. God can handle this. He can handle James' situation, but he doesn't. Why? Because it's not his primary interest. And that's because that deliverance, that physical type of deliverance, is not our primary need. We most acutely need, we primarily need to be delivered from the evil one, spiritually speaking. The big question is not, am I going to physically live or die? We're all going to physically die. Eventually, we're all going to die. So, yeah, can he deliver us physically? Sure. That's no big deal, though. I know it's a big deal. The bigger realm, it's not a big deal. The real question is, when you die, will you die in faith or not? Will your soul be delivered or not? Will you die holding fast to Christ or not? That's the major, that is the key, that is the fundamental question, the biggest question. It should be our biggest concern, and it is God's greatest concern. On this question, God is most surely the strong deliverer of his people. He has settled that issue once for all at the cross. That is done. That is finished. That must dominate our thinking in our minds. We must see the cross and see yourself as delivered, as rescued, as your soul kept secure. That must dominate how you think and see. And if it does, then you'll be like Stephen, who's executed praying for his killers. Like Peter, the night before his execution, who's asleep. Like history says, James died. James, history tells us, died so at peace that one of the guards who was holding him converted to Christianity in the spot and was himself beheaded. Because he was stunned by how this man would die. Those are people whose hope is not in their physical deliverance, but whose hope is banked on the fact that I have been spiritually delivered. The physical deliverance that we see here shows God's ability. And so we reckon through, God can bring me through this. He does not, maybe. He does not. He can work through a miracle, but he's not going to. His wisdom is sure and pure. He knows everything. His timing is impeccable, but he's not. He's chosen a different path for me. Is that good or not? And at that point, you have to run to the cross. You have to go to the cross right at that point. Is his choice, is his will for me to have me die tomorrow? Is that good or not? You have to go to the cross and say, he always does me good. That's bizarre in our minds. Beheading, being good? Well, no, beheading itself is not good. It's evil. But there's something, in, when the scripture says that all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, life or death, 
There's some way that death is mine. Death does something for me. It delivers me into the presence of God. So we can say, as some people have said, He will deliver us from evil or through evil or by evil. He'll deliver me either from this physical evil here. He'll deliver me by this physical evil into his presence. Or he'll deliver me through this physical evil to keep trusting him. He's a deliverer all the way around. I find that as I think this through, my fear that I'm going to be James, and my reckoning that I probably am James, and my realization as I look at life, life really is more James-ish if... I'm only looking at deliverance in the physical realm. I'm not going to be delivered. We're not going to be delivered. If I've defined deliverance as deliverance from this evil. From this physical evil. Brothers and sisters, what I'm encouraging you to do is look at this deliverance from the physical evil and use it as a, a piece that builds in you confidence God can. God can. So if you look at your life and he doesn't, it's because he's doing something else and it is good for you because he always does good for you. You know that because of the cross. When I think that through, I can look at things that are real in life, like, you know, I, I go out, I step out, I share my faith, and this guy ridicules me. Or I lose that relationship with that person. Maybe in your setting, I suffer at work. My advancement, my prestige at work takes a hit. I'm ostracized in my neighborhood. Take it out of the evangelism realm. I look and I see that I'm still afflicted with sickness and illness. My kids still wander away. My spouse still doesn't love me like he or she should. I look at all those things in life that are hard, that are suffering, and I say, Lord, you should be delivering me from them. Well, you could. I'm sure of it. But he doesn't. Is another plan, is it good or not? Yes. He always does good to his people. It should build a trust in you. It should build a trust in you to keep coming to him, to keep following after him, even if suffering comes your way. See, option one is for the church to say, that got us in trouble. We'd better not talk to anybody. Option two is to say, that got us in trouble, and God can deliver us in any number of different ways, and actually God will deliver us in some way or another, spiritually, perhaps physically. So we're going to keep stepping out, keep obeying him. God is the strong deliverer of his people, but we doubt that if we limit deliverance to only be in the physical realm. Don't do that. God is the deliverer of his people, 
It's the first point we see in this passage. And the second point, then, is about what we should be, about how we should respond to that. See that in what the church is doing. Do we have any part in his deliverance? Yes. This is going to be shorter than the, the first point there because I've talked about this before, but we see it again here. How are we supposed to respond? Pray. Pray, 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 I'll say. We should pray, deliver us from evil. We were taught to pray like that, weren't we? To lift up our hands to the Lord and say, deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. That's who he is. We should pray, God, come and bring us through. Bring your people through. Would you extend your kingdom on this earth? Would you make your glory seen? Would you make your power known? That's our prayer. Verses 5 and 12 show the church praying, and they are praying, it says in verse 5, earnestly, continually, striving. They're praying in verse 12 all night before he is to be executed. They're not praying once and considering it done. They're persistent. That's how the New Testament would have us to pray persistently over and over and over again. Not because it wants to say, if you can only pray once, don't bother because God won't listen. But there's something in persistence. Think of Luke 18. I've talked about this before. What does Jesus teach in Luke 18? The persistent widow. He says, that woman, that, that widow, went to this judge again and again and again and again. Why? Because he was the only one who could do anything about her situation. She kept going to him. And he uses that story to teach the church. It specifically says to teach Christians to pray and never give up. To keep going and going and going to God because of what it says about us. Lord, we believe that you are the only one who can do anything about this. You are the only one who is the deliverer. I can't do it. I'm trusting wholly in you. I don't come to the night before the execution and say, this hasn't worked so far, I'm going to go to plan B. I say, there is no plan B. You must act or we perish. You must intervene or he dies. You must, Lord, you must come. We pray persistently again and again and again because of what it says about us and because of what it says we believe about God that he is the, the, not a, the deliverer. So we pray. If you can only pray once, pray once. But if you can pray continually, pray continually to beg him, to beseech him. It's clear that that's what's expected. Not in, a, not in some, we, we get this twisted if we think that if I ask ten times, then God has to answer. He doesn't ever surrender his sovereignty to us. We don't obligate him by frequency of prayer. But he wants us to pray and to pray continually. And he's, for some reason, he's inclined to answer continual prayer. He's honored by that. He wants to come through. So the question is, do we pray? We see 
Chapter 12, God delivers in response to verse 5. That's clear. Are we verse 5 praying people or not? It's not very hard. Are we a verse 5 praying church? What do you think? It's hard for me to say yes. But let's not talk about the church. Let's talk about us individually. Am I a verse 5 praying person? No. I admit that to my shame. But that's the truth. Are you a verse 5 praying person? Earnestly, persistently. Would God's answer, like verse 12, would God's answer find you praying for that answer? So, so intent on asking for it that you're actually kind of surprised that, it, that it's already happened. But you're intent on asking. Think about yourself. What's your prayer life like? Is your prayer life a few minutes here and there spread over ten different subjects? Is there... Is there anything that you just grab a hold of the robe of of God and say, you must, please, you must, this person, you must, this thing, please, earnestly, do you pray like that? If you don't, I would suggest it's because you really don't believe the first point. God is the strong deliverer of his people. You affirm that, but you don't really believe it. I think these two things have to work together in our lives. I'll pray, and I'll affirm the first point, but what I really believe is that I can also get it done some other way. There's deliverance in God and in this other thing too. So I'll pray, and this other thing too. Think about that. In your, think about that for yourself. Is there a connection in your life between a weak prayer life or an irregular prayer life, and what you actually think about the first point? Does deliverance rest in God alone? Deliverance from the physical realm, deliverance in the spiritual realm. Does it rest in God alone? Is he the one who's the deliverer? The persistent widow goes to the judge because she's sure he's the one I have to be talking to. Are you convinced like that about God? There are opportunities to pray and to get better at praying in our church. Small groups, the monthly prayer event that we've started and is coming up again here a week from Wednesday. There are opportunities to do that in our church, but it starts with you individually, with you personally, at home, by yourself, praying. That's what a church's prayer life is built on the individual's prayer lives. I've been thinking recently about my prayer life and what, how I pray, how much I pray, what I pray about. And something that I've been, I've been thinking through things like this and, and confessing my sin, the sin of prayerlessness, 
been thinking about what truths, Lord, do you need to build into my life to give me like girders on which I can build a substantial prayer life. This is one of them, I think. I'm asking you, give attention to your prayer life and think through, do I, do I have sin I need to confess? Do I have truths that I need to ask God, confirm this in me, drive this into me, change me so that I am a prayer? I'm convinced God wants us to pray and God will respond and deliver spiritually and even physically. God will move in remarkable ways in response to prayer. I think this has to change in our church's life. It has to change in my life at least. I'm asking you, consider it. Come with me and pray, pray, pray. Deliver us from evil. God is the strong deliverer of his people. So we must go to him praying for deliverance. Acts chapter 12. He will respond. Pray with me now. Take a few minutes and pray now. And, and think about your prayer life in particular. Lord, are there things I need to change? Are there things that I don't really believe? I say I believe, but I don't really believe about you. Would you teach them to me inside here? Take a few minutes to think about that, pray, and then I'll draw us back together and we'll turn towards communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.